reassessing COVID safety plans. There's a fatigue out there that all of us are feeling. What businesses need to know to stay open. Pushing back against new health orders. It's going to hurt, and there's no two ways about it. Can BC tourism survive the second wave? And the cold, hard truth about a COVID vaccine. We don't know at this point how many will be provided to Canada. The logistical challenges that could seriously delay delivery. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. A slow, steady climb in hospitalizations connected to COVID-19 in BC is raising concerns tonight about BC's battle with the virus. Today's numbers show we have 525 new cases, bringing our total to 19,239 for the province. Sadly, we've had three more deaths, which means 284 people have now died from the virus. 142 are in hospital, that's up 9. 46 patients are in ICU, that's up 3. 13,704 people are considered recovered, leaving us with more than 5,000 active cases for the first time and approaching 10,000 people in self-isolation. Keith Baldry joins us now with more on this. Keith, this is the first time we've cracked that 5,000 active case milestone. How does it break down between regions? Yeah, it certainly is a, a milestone. Remember when we hit 1,000, we thought that was a pretty big number. Then 2,000. We've come to more than 5,000 very quickly, a relatively short period of time. But again, it reflects where the COVID virus is predominantly, and that's in Fraser Health. So take a look at how the active cases break down across the province. As I mentioned, Fraser Health has the majority, 68% of two-thirds of the cases in Fraser Health. Vancouver Coastal starting to creep up a bit in recent days at 27%. Interior uh, North and Vancouver Island relatively few active cases of COVID-19. Fraser Health continues to be sort of the epicenter of our pandemic now, but the gap is slowly narrowing between Fraser Health and Vancouver Central as we're starting to see a slight decline in Fraser Health percentage numbers on a percentage basis and a slight increase in Vancouver Coastal. And keep in mind, of course, those are the two health authorities affected by the, the public health order now not to gather. And we'll be tracking these numbers, of course, in the weeks ahead if we, and check to see if that ratio does indeed change or case numbers low uh, or lower as people don't gather and follow public health orders. Let's hope those numbers start trending down. Appreciate it, Keith. Now, as COVID-19 cases continue to spike, WorkSafe BC is ramping up inspections in Metro Vancouver. And some businesses are caught in the middle. Aaron MacArthur has more on the continued confusion and frustration as workplaces wait to see if their amended pandemic safety plans comply with new orders. While the bikes sit idle, owner Dominic Desbois is furiously trying to get his business back up and spinning. Right now we're in somewhat of a holding pattern. The new provincial health orders for Metro Vancouver include fitness studios and gyms to resubmit safety plans. Easier said than done. Desbois called Vancouver Coastal Health, which pointed him in the direction of the website, where the information was six months old. So it's a document from May. And uh, I was to use that as a guide to kind of um, prepare a reopening plan, which we already had. Spin Society reworked its plan anyway and sent it back to Vancouver Coastal Health. We don't know when to expect a response or, or if, you know, that plan is even valid. Business owners appear to be caught between two bureaucracies. While new safety plans are required for health authorities, WorkSafe BC says there's no need for any new information. Inspectors will be making the rounds ensuring employee safety. 
What we're asking them now with this new enhanced inspection approach that's happening right now is to stay true to their plans, to stay vigilant. WorkSafe has conducted more than 18,000 inspections since the reopening began. Just more than 700 of those have resulted in orders. Stand out your life. Business owners, by and large, say they welcome more detailed guidance. I mean, I can only imagine if somebody came through our place over the summer and, and um, gave us some input onto what we can do better if what we're doing is not adequate. While there is still confusion about the health orders, Vancouver Coastal says it is aware of the need to move quickly. Small business owners say because this latest round of closures came out of the blue, it hurts as much as the original shutdown did. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. The issue of the safety of our schools is front and center again tonight after some comments by Premier John Horgan on Monday. Richard Zussman has the latest on Horgan's suggestion that we might need a troubleshooting process to deal with doubts about COVID protocols. It's a new tool to address concerns in the school system. We understand that the Labor Relations Board will be making recommendations on putting in place a new troubleshooting process within our K-12 system. Nearly two months ago, the BC Teachers Federation went to the Labor Relations Board, the union pushing for clear guidance on how someone in the school system can formally raise concerns about mainly three things. A lack of cleaning, a lack of enforcement of the cohort system, and a lack of mask wearing in certain areas. We were concerned about the lack of oversight and enforcement uh, of the health and safety measures that are currently required in, in schools. The official letter from the Labor Relations Board has not been released publicly yet, but the troubleshooting mechanism is expected to be a committee, including teachers, administrators, school staff and parents, to review each legitimate complaint. That means rapid responses when we see issues within our classrooms, whether it be brought forward by teachers, by parents, uh, by support staff. But there are still a lot of questions, like exactly what powers do parents have to raise concerns? And if a teacher or a staff or a student is found to have broken the rules, what's the punishment? Beyond all of that, what is government doing in order to prevent these sort of infractions from actually happening at schools? One that is more of a proactive and preventative measures where, you know, uh, school districts and local unions are worked with to make sure that um, the safety plans are up to where the standards that they should be up to. When the actual review committee will be in place is still unknown, while pressure on the school system has never been higher, with 93 different schools currently reporting virus exposure events in Metro Vancouver alone. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. TransLink is implementing a new COVID-19 safety initiative, becoming the first transit system in North America to test the effectiveness of copper to combat the virus. Grace Key joins us now with more on how this will work. Grace. Yeah, so this is a four-week pilot project. It's going to start on Sunday. And you'll notice some of the copper on two Vancouver buses and two of the SkyTrain cars just on the Expo Millennium line. So this is how it works. The copper is going to be on some high-touch surfaces, so those poles that you usually hang on to when you're, uh, when you're traveling on a bus or SkyTrain. The copper could be in the form of stick-ons or flip-on covers. Now, copper is known to kill bacteria and viruses, and some studies show it can destroy up to 99.9% of bacteria and viruses within four hours. Now, they're also going to be testing out a wipe of a protective coating called organocyline, mining company Tech Resources, and one of the partners. With the COVID-19 pandemic, we realized 
that the use of copper to fight the spread of infections could have even broader applications, especially in high-traffic, high-touch locations such as where we are right now. So they're going to swab and test the surfaces regularly. They're also going to assess for durability. Now the cost of this, again, it's a pilot project. It'll be $90,000. Tech is picking up that cost. And right now they say it's just, uh, TransLink says it's just too early to say, you know, when and if this is going to be used on the system and cost and funding right now they can't say as well. All right. Thanks for that, Grace Key, reporting in Vancouver. The COVID-19 pandemic has decimated BC's tourism and hospitality industries. Now they say the latest public health orders are another gut punch, bringing an abrupt end to the mini recovery that had British Columbians taking those occasional weekend getaways. Kylie Stanton reports. The quiet streets are about to get even quieter. Empty hotels on the brink. Like so many destinations, Victoria's tourism industry has been devastated by this pandemic. And now it's bracing for yet another blow. It's going to hurt and there's no two ways about it. With the number of new COVID-19 cases spiking in BC, the province's restart plan has taken a step back. The provincial health officer ordering a restriction on non-essential travel to and from Metro Vancouver for a minimum of two weeks. We know that this virus moves with people and it is us who have the ability to stop that transmission. But it's a move the sector claims is going to kill any small gains it may have made. It's very difficult because uh, obviously the reason for increased number is due to people choosing not to be personally responsible with the recommended behavior. And very often, um, you know, when these things happen, they have impacts far beyond what people would anticipate. In Greater Victoria, the sector reported being down more than 70% in revenue last month alone. Since the new orders were announced, hundreds of cancellations have come in, only compounding the dire situation facing hotels, currently sitting at 30% occupancy for the year, and that's only charging roughly 50% of the average rate. Which means uh, businesses are in the red. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Enjoy. It's a far cry from the more than $20 billion BC's tourism industry was projecting to generate this year before the pandemic hit. Still, the weekend getaways and looming ski season had those who've made it this far hopeful for better days to come. Now, they're not so sure. Everyone understands why, but there's no minimizing the damage that it's caused. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. Pfizer's reports of 90% success in COVID-19 vaccine trials has sparked a lot of hope that immunizations might start happening in the new year. But regulatory approval is just one hurdle. Distribution is a whole other logistical challenge. And as Ted Trudecki reports, federal and provincial systems are getting ready. With a hint that some Pfizer COVID-19 vaccines might be ready early in the new year, there are now many questions about Canada's readiness for the monumental task of delivery. Just as we did with our procurements of PPE, we will ensure that there is an effective and efficient vaccine distribution system in place. Ottawa says it's been working on several scenarios to make sure delivery to every Canadian is fast and free of charge. In order to do that, we've been working since the summer on a comprehensive plan for distribution, recognizing that different vaccines will have different requirements. Some 
can be kept at room temperature. Some uh, need to be kept at minus 75. Uh, and there's a huge range of complexity around that. Like how mountainous BC poses its own distribution problems, especially in the dead of winter or early spring when travel by road would be increasingly perilous. Dry ice would be the coolant of choice, but it's heavy and potentially dangerous to air travel. Getting a shipment to Vancouver in a specialized cargo jet shouldn't be a problem, but then what? So maybe we'll have center of distribution around Vancouver, not supposed not to be a problem, but when you're talking about rural or remote uh, regions, that will be a problem basically, because you will need to transport, I guess, in, in trucks that they are already uh, adapted for minus 70 degrees or deliver dry ice. But Pfizer says it has a plan. It wants to ship about a thousand doses each in smaller dry ice containers to distribution points. Once they take it out of the ice, they can keep it five days in the normal fridge. So we have worked extensively to develop this distribution network. If approved, both the U.S. and U.K. say they will start limited distribution to frontline healthcare and first responders as early as December. Dry ice manufacturers are also ramping up for an anticipated worldwide demand. Other vaccines may be more manageable if and when they're approved. Canada has contractual agreements with at least four other companies. Ted Chernecki, Global News. Time is running out for money to tackle homelessness. The feds offered B.C. $51 million, but it came with some strings attached. Why Vancouver's mayor says the money will disappear if he doesn't get some help from the province in just over a minute. The little-known story of the six soldiers who fought alongside Allied forces in World War II and why it's being told today, coming up on the news hour. And what looked like a bad miss turns out to be a miracle during a practice round at the Masters Golf Tournament coming up later in sports. Right now, though, a month after Vancouver agreed to spend $30 million to bring unhoused people inside during the pandemic, and the city's mayor is asking the province for help. Nadia Stewart has more on Kennedy Stewart's call for a homelessness czar and why he says the clock is ticking on federal cash to help the homeless. Since the election, we haven't had a provincial uh, minister coordinating these services, and we really need that right now. There is one seat in Premier John Horgan's cabinet the city of Vancouver will be watching closely. Before the snap election was called, Shane Simpson was the Minister of Social Development and Poverty Reduction. The only way that Oppenheimer was resolved was through the appointment of Shane Simpson, who was able to pull together the provincial agencies, nonprofits, city, park board, and kind of move everything along. What's at stake for the city is $51.5 That's how much they're expecting to receive directly from Ottawa for rapid housing projects. But that money will only come on the condition the province has someone in place who can coordinate wraparound services. If we don't get that, uh, the money goes back up to the federal government and we lose it. So we need that really within the next couple of weeks. Now Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart is calling on the province to fill Simpson's shoes, appointing a new homelessness minister to help address the region's chronic problems, made worse by the pandemic, especially in Vancouver, a problem no single level of government can solve on its own. This is something that's a collective issue. Like We need the help of everybody to jump on board with this. A lot of these issues are, are street disorder problems, and it has to do with some of the societal issues, societal failings that we've had in terms of homelessness. 
um, unable to get housing in terms of the drug addiction, mental health problem. In a statement, the Premier's office says the process of selecting a new cabinet has already begun. Adding $225 million in capital funding has been spent addressing homelessness in Vancouver. But clearly, there is more work to be done. It's why Stewart is encouraging the feds to funnel money directly into cities if they truly want a targeted approach to addressing homelessness. The mayor hopes they'll be working with a new minister before the end of November. Nadia Stewart, Global News. Now, something that seems to happen every Remembrance Day, and it appears the pandemic is not stopping thieves this year from targeting poppy donation boxes. Abbotsford police are asking for your help to identify the suspects in two recent thefts. On Saturday, a suspect was spotted on surveillance, swiping the veterans' poppy donation box from the front desk of the Sandman Hotel on Simon Avenue. Then, on Sunday evening, a suspect was caught on video stealing the poppy box from the Abbotsford Esso on Clearbrook Road. Both are described as white men in their 30s. And Victoria Police want to know if you recognize this man. He's a suspect in a nearly $100,000 fraud. Police say the man who wore a hand or finger cast on his left hand picked out two high-end watches at a local jeweler on October 29th. Investigators allege the suspect obtained a bank draft through a sophisticated fraud scheme involving the transfer of money using false ID. He was also with another man wearing dark clothing. Police believe the first suspect was on the 7 p.m. sailing from Swartz Bay to Tawasson on the same day. Up next, a couple saves thousands of dollars by calling Consumer Matters. It wouldn't have happened without, uh, without a global... The bittersweet resolution to cancelled vacation plans. Also tonight, remembering one of the great legends in BC sports and the incredible contributions that Tony Waiters made to soccer. Not one, but two crashes holding up traffic tonight in Burnaby, eastbound on Highway 1 near Kensington. Crews are on scene and the lineup is backing up to First Avenue in Vancouver. Kermat Collision and Auto Glass have been family-run and locally owned since 1973. For unmatched quality repairs and exceptional service, choose Kermac. For location information, visit Kermac.com. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. We have a successful conclusion to a Consumer matter story we brought you last week. Tony and Donna Smith had purchased a Sunwing vacations package for 11 family members and COVID cancelled it. The Langley couple was out more than $16,000 and called our Ann Drua for help. Well, she joins us now to show us how things turned around pretty quickly, Ann. Yeah, they sure did, Sophie. You may remember the Smiths were offered vouchers for their vacation that Sunwing canceled due to COVID-19. Sunwing wouldn't budge and would only offer the Smiths the option of transferring the credit to another customer, which would be valid for two years. They had trip cancellation insurance, but say their claim was denied on the basis they had been offered vouchers. Making matters worse, their son-in-law has since suffered a cardiac arrest due to flesh-eating disease and still remains in hospital. The money is needed to help out their daughter financially. Well, just a day after our story was broadcast, Tony says he received a call from TD informing him the entire cost of the trip, just under $17,000, would be credited back to his account. It wouldn't have happened without, uh, without a Global and uh, Consumer Matters. Um, we tried for, for many, many months to get, it, get a re 
refund through Sunwing and through our travel insurance company to absolutely no success. And uh, within with, with Global becoming involved, it's been uh, resolved uh, within a matter of days. So we're very, very grateful to the role that Global and Andrew particularly has played in this uh, to get us our money back. Now, as you well know, there are many Canadians who have been given vouchers instead of refunds by Canada's commercial airlines during the pandemic. Some passengers have even filed class action lawsuits over not getting refunds. This week, Ottawa is sitting down with airline executives over a possible government COVID-19 aid package. Federal Transport Minister Mark Garneau has said federal aid to airlines will hinge on refunding passengers for cancelled flights. So we will certainly be watching for that one. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. Good work, Anne. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Well, travel agents are raising concerns after it was announced airlines would have to fully refund customers in order to get any government support. And that means commissions could be clawed back, potentially a massive blow in an industry already struggling because of COVID-19. Global's Michael King has more. Why are we being the ones that are being penalized? It's a harsh reality for travel agent Terry Jo Lennox. Passenger numbers have dropped by 90% and now mandatory refunds from airlines means commissions on those tickets will be clawed back. Somewhere between 2 and 10% of that ticket cost is being clawed back from the, their, their favourite travel advisor or their local travel agency that supports their community in a number of ways. The federal government made full refunds a stipulation if airlines ever wanted to get financial support. But while carriers slashed their schedules in order to save costs, the work by travel agents to book flights was already done. So there's the time factor. Then there's actually the actual cost of generating the ticket, all the licensing and fees we have to maintain with the airlines and the, you know, the governing bodies. Lennox says the airline should refund passengers but subtract the commission costs. Air Canada says its refund policy currently remains unchanged, including for agents, and that commissions are not paid on refunded tickets. While WestJet says it's urging the federal government to take action, saying it's advocating not only for the airline but the entire travel supply chain. Transport Canada didn't provide any details on support for travel agents when asked, but in the United States it was the government, not the airlines, that helped support the rest of the travel industry. Uh, there was a decent effort by, uh, you know, for, through different programs, but also part of the CARES Act to try to make sure that some of that funding remained available. So uh, definitely not directly from the airlines, but, you know, they're trying in some ways. Lennox hopes there's an answer soon. If not, the effects of travel agents closing up shop could trickle down through the industry. They ultimately could save the airlines, but there will be no travel distribution channel left to fill the planes if, you know, we all end up not being able to survive. Michael King, Global News. Still ahead, a twisted mind on trial in Toronto. I felt it was time to take action. How Alec Manassian and his lawyers are arguing to beat murder charges in his terrifying van rampage. Also coming up, more evidence it's going to be a rocky transition in the U.S. presidency. Still dealing with two separate accidents on Highway 1 in Burnaby tonight. Major delays now and crews on scene. Eastbound near Kensington, traffic is backing up past First Avenue in Vancouver. Today's Lotto Max jackpot is an estimated $24 million. Lotto Max, dream to the max. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. 
On day one of the Toronto van attack trial, Alec Manassian pleaded not guilty to 10 counts of first-degree murder and 16 counts of attempted murder. As Global's Catherine McDonald reports, Manassian told the court he is not criminally responsible for what he did. These are videos shown on the opening day of the trial for Alec Manassian. According to Crown Attorney Joseph Callahan, it was a sunny day in April 2018 when pedestrians were out, that their worlds were shattered by Manassian. The Richmond Hill man admitted that he killed 10 people and injured 16 others, and that the murders were planned and deliberate, but told the judge via Zoom teleconference, I enter a plea of not criminally responsible for all counts. The only issue in this trial is Manassian's criminal responsibility. According to an agreed statement of facts, Manassian went to this Ryder Van rental company around 1 p.m. on April 23, 2018, after making a reservation three weeks earlier. The Crown telling the judge he began planning in advance. Manassian got the van and drove to the area of Young and Finch and saw people congregated on the west side. It was at this point he determined he was going to start his mission, said Callahan. At 1.27 p.m., Manassian published a post on his Facebook page referring to the incel rebellion before driving towards the sidewalk and into the crowd. Quote, Manassian accelerated over top of the victims, never slowing. He drove in one swift move and did not break when he hit the pedestrians. At no point after hitting the first group of people did Manassian slow down or stop to render assistance to those he struck. Instead, Manassian accelerated the van as he went over people. Pictures of the victims were also shown in the words of the Crown in their final resting spot. At 1.30 p.m., Manassian came to a stop two and a half kilometers away from where his deadly rampage had begun. Courts saw video of Constable Ken Lamb yelling at Manassian to get down. Manassian finally surrendering after trying to get the officer to shoot him first. Manassian was taken to 32 Division, where he was formally charged. I felt it was time to take action and not just sit on the sidelines. The four-hour interview with Detective Rob Thomas after Manassian's arrest is also part of the statement of facts. In it, Manassian says he was rejected by women and called himself an involuntary celibate or an incel and wanted to seek revenge. I was starting to feel radicalized at that time. The Crown also said psychiatrists and psychologists will be called upon to give testimony. Manassian showed no emotion as the disturbing details about how innocent people were injured and killed were read out. The trial is expected to last six weeks. Catherine McDonald, Global News. In the U.S. tonight, the Donald Trump administration continues to make the transition to a Joe Biden administration a difficult one. Not only is Trump following through on legal challenges, but some senior staff are refusing to follow normal procedures. President-elect Joe Biden tonight in his first comments about President Trump refusing to concede the 2020 race. I just think it's an embarrassment, um, quite frankly. It will not help the president's legacy. Biden barreling ahead with his presidential transition. So I'm confident that uh, the fact that they're not willing to acknowledge we won at this point is uh, not of much consequence in our planning and what we're able to do between now and January 20th. His team has spent months mapping out a quick start for a future Biden White House. Their work now hitting a roadblock. The Trump appointee who heads the General Services Administration has not officially recognized Biden as president-elect. Doing so would release additional resources and intelligence, including for Biden, the president's daily brief. Obviously, the PDB would be useful, but it's not necessary. I'm not the sitting president now. 
And so uh, we don't see anything in slowing us down. While President Trump isn't acknowledging Biden's victory, many world leaders are. The president-elect fielding phone calls and congrats from the heads of France, Germany, Ireland, Canada, and the UK. I'm letting them know that America's back. Biden's comments coming as many prominent Republicans are pushing President Trump's baseless claims that voter fraud might have swung the election, despite a lack of evidence. Asked how he can be sure Republicans will work with him once in office if they won't acknowledge his win, Biden was confident. They will. They will. Jeff Bennett, NBC News, Wilmington, Delaware. Well, just seven months after the federal government called on Canadian industry and entrepreneurs to join in the COVID fight, a new state-of-the-art factory in Surrey is now producing N95 respirators. And as Sarah McDonald reports, they kick things off with a key donation. When the federal government called on Canadian manufacturers and entrepreneurs to join the fight against COVID-19, this Surrey-based startup answered. It's made to create N95 masks. And in the time since, Eternity Medical Equipment has grown into a 13,000-square-foot purpose-built factory, one of the first in the province producing medical-grade respirators for distribution. So we have uh, inside the... the uh, nose foam and make you feel very comfortable. Also the layer, we have about five layers. Since November 2nd up until yesterday, a further uh, 69,631 N95 or equivalent respirators have come to BC. It's a product the province and the country will desperately need for the foreseeable future. With the potential for that coveted vaccine looking promising, but still months off at least. In the meantime, this company projects it can pump out some 2.5 million surgical masks on a monthly basis, once certified by Health Canada. For one shift, 30,000 masks can be made, and in two shifts per day, 60,000 masks. This 13,000... The Premier and Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum already praising the company for its innovation and its contribution, not only to public health, but the economy too, with more than 10,000 masks already donated to Canadian veterans. Uh, so far we employ 17 employees. To, uh, once we uh, expand the two shifts, we can hire more. If all goes to plan, Eternity plans to employ up to 50 people come December, when production for public consumption is officially set to begin. Sarah McDonald, Global News. Still ahead, a story from World War II most have never heard before. We're hoping that it will be shown in classrooms. A local movie production turning the lens on those who fought for democracy, even if they'd never experienced it dip themselves. And the amazing shot that has everyone excited about this year's Masters Golf Tournament. Take a moment to reflect. BC remembers from Vancouver's Victory Square Cenotaph, Wednesday, November 11th from 10.30 a.m. In partnership with the Royal Canadian Legion, wear a poppy to remember. Hello. Oh. Oh. Hello there. Little cutie. Firefighters had an unforgettable experience rescuing a kitty in Sydney. How they located this little guy right after Christie's forecast. Wow. All right. Let's get to uh, Christie right away here. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, got some snow last night, but yep. kind of typical fall weather today, it seemed. 
Yes, definitely below seasonal, but you're right. Typical fall weather, that's for sure. We had that excitement last night with snow over higher elevations. The snow continued in the interior today. And I wanted to show you the high temperatures from today just to give you an idea of what we were at, especially in through the interior. We were just close to the freezing mark. So we're still not making our way up above the freezing mark in a lot of areas. And this is the scene out there. So Lawrence sent me this from Pressy Lake. He said, I like to look at this sign every once in a while. And when the snow comes, those are the signs pointing towards all those nice warm places he's been and signs of winter coming because you can see here as the waves of this lake move in these little droplets freeze on the reeds and they get bigger and bigger thank you to marie for that one chimney lake is just near and look at Green Lake right now, starting to freeze over. Thank you to Warren Lowe for that one. So yes, uh, yes, signs of winter. Now, the worst of the snowfall is over. We still have a few flurries for the Caribou, Columbia, Kootenai region, and that will mainly be overnight tonight. As we head into tomorrow morning, slight chance of a few flurries in the Cranbrook region. Overall, we're looking at sunshine, except for Metro Vancouver and Victoria. Socked in likely tomorrow. We may see a sprinkle or two in the morning. Overall, it should be a dry day and we'll see sunny breaks in the afternoon or some lightning in the afternoon. But really, we're headed towards the next system. I'm having a hard time clicking my clicker, if you don't mind helping me, Jeff. Um, as we head towards Thursday, that's when we could start to see more rain. So Thursday, rain, and then Friday, rain and wind before we could see a bit of sunshine over the weekend. We'll just click it right through, if you don't mind, Jeff. We'll move up forward if you can. There's your forecast for your Wednesday. So lots of sunshine as you can see here. Slight chance of a flurry in through the Cranbrook region. That's about it. And then for our region, mainly cloudy but mainly dry. And our five-day forecast does show a stormy day on Thursday with rain. Friday, wind and rain, but some breaks of blue sky on Saturday. And I'll leave you with our central windows weather window, which is a gorgeous shot. So this is looking out over uh, the Victoria. Hopefully you can see it. <laughs> the Victoria International Airport. This is an Art installation that was put in to, mem uh, in uh, to honor the men and women um, that were part of uh, World War II and that trained at the uh, Pape Air Force Base there. Lovely. All right. Thank you very much, Christy. Thanks, Christy. All right. If you thought we were done with puns, nope. you better claw back your expectations because <laughs> that catastrophe averted in Australia where firefighters conducted a perfect rescue. We have more. Hello. Oh, it came out. Oh. Hey, buddy. Look. <laughs> oh, hi. Yes, curiosity got the best of this little kitten. The owners called for help when they could hear the little guy meow, but they couldn't find it. Rescue crews used a thermal imaging camera to locate the animal inside a wall cavity before cutting through the gyp rock. It took a little coaxing. But eventually, the curious ginger cat was returned to safety. It's not known how it got there in the first place or how many of its nine lives it just used up. Aww. Little hole, easy to patch. That's a good thing. Sweet little guy. <laughs> little mud. Uh, okay. I was saying the kitten is a sweet little guy. It's yeah. Also. There's another one. <laughs> Thank you. I promise I'll never get stuck in your wall. <laughs> well, we would rescue you. If I made enough noise, you probably would. <laughs> if you meow. Uh, soccer in Vancouver and Canada uh, lost one of its most important teachers today with the passing of Tony Waiters. He had such a passion for the game and was such a lovely man. We'll look back at the life of the former white cap and Canadian national team coach. Also tonight, unsung heroes of the Second World War, the story of South Asian soldiers who helped defeat the Nazis.
legend, giant. Uh, you could use words like that to describe the man we lost today. Squire. That is true. Uh, Canadian soccer did lose one of its most important figures today with the uh, death of former Whitecap and national team coach Tony Waiters. He died at the age of 83 actually last week. He came to Canada from England to coach the Whitecaps in 1977 and he fell in love with this country and he also fell in love with this city. But I'm not sure even that love equaled his passion and love for the game of soccer and teaching it. It's all over. The Vancouver Whitecaps are the new champions of the North American Soccer League. There's coach Tony Waiters, who's done a magnificent job in the past two years. There's a very good case for the fact that Tony Waiters could be considered the most influential person in Canadian soccer history. It wasn't just his work making the Vancouver Whitecaps North American Soccer League champions in 1979, but Waiters was also the man who managed Canada's men's team to its only World Cup appearance in 1986. Our team wasn't the best team in the World Cup by a long job. It was the fittest team because the Canadian players would run through a brick wall. It was more like they'd go through a brick wall for him. He loved to teach the game, be it to pros or amateurs. I know that the people that matter know what Tony Waiters has contributed to the game in this country. I'm one of them. A former goalkeeper, Tony Waiters had a keen sense, not just of that position, but of all the positions on the field. He told me he could make me a better player and I could go back and play in the first division. And he did that. And what, you know, I'm th thinking back now and say, how's a goalkeeper going to teach uh, a winger how to be a better player? And he did. And in many ways, the Whitecaps are still here because of Tony Waiters. He was the catalyst behind the Vancouver 86ers starting which kept the pro game going in Vancouver until the big leagues came back with the MLS. It was kind of like his gift to his adopted city because the moment he took over the Whitecaps, he made Vancouver his home. And the fact that, he's, that he passed away here obviously means that uh, this place was something special to him because he could have gone back to, to England and, and probably continued his career there, but he decided this is where he wants to be. Very nice man as well. When Tiger Woods first won the Masters in 1997, he basically overpowered the course, averaging 323 yards off the tee. It was so devastating that Augusta National actually lengthened the course. It was called tiger-proofing it. Well, this year, there's an even bigger hitter at Augusta. It's Bryson DeChambeau, who's averaging 344 yards a drive on the PGA Tour this season. And in a practice round yesterday, he hit it 40 yards further off the tee than Tiger Woods did. I will say that every day I'm trying to get faster and stronger and I'm trying to hit it as far as possible. Um, I will say that I have no idea where the end game is on this. You know, I've only seen improvements in distance. I've only seen uh, strength increases. I've only felt better every day. So I really don't know where the end game is on this, but I will say that I am hitting it further now than I was at Shriners. I am hitting it further than the U.S. Open. Um, and I'm trying, you know, a driver this week that uh, may help me hit it even a little bit further. So we'll see. I don't know. It's still uh, up in the air. I can hit it as far as I want to, but it, it comes down to putting and chipping out here. You know, th that is one of the things that I think people 
sometimes struggle to see. Um, as much as I can gain an advantage off the tee, I still have to putt it well and, and chip it well and wedge it well and even iron play it well. And that's what I did at the U.S. Open. If I don't putt it well at the U.S. Open, if I don't wedge it well, if I don't hit my irons close, I don't win that tournament. So it, it always comes down to making the putts at the end of the day. But one of the traditions before the Masters is skipping it over the 16th water and then on to the 16th green. So John Rahm did that today, and he did it perfectly. Onto the hill, here it comes, and it's his 26th birthday as well. Well, John Rahm, happy birthday, Ace. There you go. Did he have another hole-in-one yeah. the day before, too, just doing it the normal way? I think he did, yeah. Too amazing. All right, here's Andrew with a preview of Global News at 11. Ann? Thanks, Chris. North Shore Rescue has been called out to look for a group of hikers lost near Lynn Canyon. We have a camera on the way. Plus, another Asian giant hornet or killer hornet has been found in the Fraser Valley. We'll let you know exactly where and what the risks are. Plus, the city of Prince George has been scammed out of more than $700,000. How it happened and the warning for other governments and private businesses. Those stories and more when you join us tonight at 11 o'clock. Chris, Sophie? Incredible. Story. All right, thanks, Ann. Up next, the South Asian soldiers who put their lives on the line for king and country and how their sacrifices are being remembered. Watch the Global News and 980 CKNW Leadership Series every Saturday and Sunday in partnership with Fortis BC Energy at Work. On the eve of Remembrance Day, we've learned that trailblazing Canadian war hero George Chow has died. At just 18 years old, Chow enlisted to serve in the Second World War, even though at the time the Canadian government wouldn't recognize him as a citizen. While serving in England, Chow was part of the first all-Canadian gun crew to shoot down a German plane. He participated in the Operation Overlord landings at Normandy, and his unit was part of the Allied push through France, Belgium, the Netherlands, and into Germany. Following the war, he continued to serve as a gunnery instructor and was discharged in 1963 with the rank of Master Warrant Officer. In 2012, Chow received the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal. And in 2015, the French government awarded him the Medal of Legion of Honor. Chow died on November 6, just one day after his 99th birthday. And a B.C. uh, filmmaker is paying tribute to another group of brave soldiers who often go overlooked. As Linda Aylesworth reports, his new movie shines the spotlight on more than two million South Asian men who volunteered to fight for democracy, even though they didn't yet have it in their own country. When the UK declared war on Nazi Germany in 1939, India was part of the British Empire and expected to join in the war effort. Sikh soldiers, Indian soldiers uh, were fighting side by side with Canadian troops on European soil. Sikh soldiers represented over half of the Indian Army, the largest volunteer army in history. The Punjab became a hotbed of uh, recruitment for the Indian Army. Fearsome warriors, tremendous humanitarians, um, they were the, uh, you know, the ideal so- soldier. BC filmmaker Stephen Purewall has spent the last three years creating a film about the 2.5 million Indian soldiers who fought in World War II. They're portrayed by police and reservists wearing uniforms that are over 75 years old. So they're actually real things that 
many people have worn. I mean, the boots that we're wearing, we literally put ourselves in our forefathers' shoes. Time to play the game of love, Piario! Let's move! It was one of the greatest experiences I've ever had in my life. Just putting on the uniform, I was, you know, I thought about my forefathers and people in India, uh, where my family immigrated from. With that awareness and connection comes a sense of pride. Problem is, their ancestors are largely forgotten heroes. When you look at our history books, when we are in high school, we learn about the World War I and II, but we don't learn much about the significance of our soldiers. Many, many youth are gravitating towards the criminal lifestyle because they have not embrace this history. Which is why they hope that when the film called Promises is completed next year, it'll find its way into school curriculums. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. And a reminder, we will have special live coverage of the services from the National War Memorial in Ottawa beginning at 7.30 tomorrow morning, hosted by Global National's Robin Gill. And be sure to join the two of us from 10.30 to 11.30 for this year's ceremony at Vancouver's Victory Square. The public being advised this year not to come down in person because of COVID-19, of course, so we hope you'll join us on Global BC1 and online. And I would just like to say, Lynn, a viewer pointed out, make a donation to the Legion this year. We're not going out as much, and we're not seeing those boxes around as much. Easy to make a donation online and support our veterans. And normally, uh, we would ask Christy what the weather's going to be like for the ceremonies, but because everyone will stay inside mm. to watch it, it's, it'll be okay if it does if it's cold and yeah and it is going to be cold tomorrow morning we could see lows of zero degrees so a chilly start to the day type of morning to just stay in and turn on global and watch the ceremonies perfect timing all right we look forward to joining you in the morning thanks very much for watching everyone and uh, yeah have a good remembrance day good night all